Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 986. 986. We've started a new sermon series going through this letter from the Apostle Paul to a church full of brand new Christians in the city of Thessalonica, probably somewhere between six months to a year after Paul was forced to leave them because of persecution. And so this morning, as he continues to remember his initial ministry among the Thessalonians, uh, Paul's going to re-emphasize his good intentions for these new believers. And so we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to begin by reading verse 1. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. So as we pick up again in, in chapter 2, Paul appeals to the Thessalonians' own knowledge of the fact that his time among them was not in vain. And right here at the beginning, we have uh, an interpretational challenge that really is key to the rest of the passage. You see, typically the word vain carries a, a, a meaning of being uh, empty or, or meaningless. All right, and so, so Paul sometimes uses that, that sense of the word. He, he writes that he fears he may have labored in vain in a particular location, or that, that all of his work in ministry at a particular place might have been for no purpose, that it didn't accomplish anything. In fact, he uses the word in that sense later on in this letter in chapter 3. He, he, he confesses that he had worried at a certain point that his labor might have been in vain. But certainly his time with the Thessalonians was not in vain in that sense, just as we saw last week. Paul remembered how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel, how they had become characterized by faith and love and hope, which, which expressed themselves through uh, work and labor and steadfastness and endurance, and how they had turned from idols to worship the one true God. Paul said that all of this was evidence that God was genuinely at work among the Thessalonians. And so Paul's ministry among them was not in vain because there was a legitimate response to the gospel. But we also know that the word vain can, can also carry a meaning of, of self-importance or conceit. What we might call more of the, the Carly Simon sense of the word. Right? You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. Someone who is vain thinks that everything is about them, that everything revolves around who they are and what they want in life. And so from that angle, Paul would be reminding the Thessalonians that his ministry among them was not about promoting himself. It was not about him getting what he wanted out of it. Now, verse 1 is a, is a hinge verse that transitions us from what Paul said last week to what he's going to say this morning. And so there's a, a sense in which both nuances of the word fit to a certain extent. But in light of the rest of the passage, the second meaning of self-importance is actually what Paul is emphasizing here. In other words, 
Paul is defending the motivations behind his ministry. Now, if we wonder why it might be necessary for Paul to clarify this, then it might be helpful for us to keep in mind that in the ancient world, before television and and the internet and other forms of mass communication, there were a lot of people who traveled around from place to place engaging people in conversations. And so whether it was a a salesman or a philosopher, a, a politician, or perhaps even just an entertainer, there were all kinds of people who went from place to place giving some form of a speech or or a presentation or a a performance and seeking to get as much money or raise as much support as possible and then moving on to the next place. And it's it's possible that, that perhaps in Paul's absence, some of the Thessalonians were beginning to wonder if that's all he was. Perhaps some of their their friends or family members who had rejected Paul's offer of the gospel were attempting to persuade them that that's all that Paul was. Look, he got what he wanted, and now he's moved on, and you're never going to see or hear from him ever again. Why why don't you drop this little Christian thing you started and come back with us to to the pagan temple? But for Paul, gospel ministry was not about him achieving fame or fortune. Gospel ministry for him was about other people becoming disciples of Jesus, no matter what it cost him. And as we move into verse 2, Paul's going to call on the Thessalonians to remember all the evidences of that truth. Uh, Again, as we move into verse 2. Paul writes, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And so as Paul begins to defend his ministry... He starts by referring back to the way that he and his team were treated while they were in the city of Philippi. And so he he says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so you may remember, if you were here with us in our series through Acts, back in Acts chapter 16, about Paul's time in the city of Philippi. Uh, He and his team were were directed there specifically by the Holy Spirit. And when they got there, they encountered a group of of women outside the city praying. And as they began to share the gospel with them, Luke records that the Lord opened the heart of a woman named Lydia. And she believed the gospel of Jesus. And then she invited Paul and his team to come and stay at her house. Then later on, Paul began to be followed by this slave girl who was possessed by a demon who allowed her to to tell people's fortunes. And so for for several days, she follows Paul around screaming 
Until finally, Luke says, Paul became annoyed by it, and he cast the demon out of her. But once she lost the demonic ability to tell people's fortunes, she was no longer able to make any money. And so her owners seized Paul and Silas, and they took them to the city magistrates, and they had them publicly stripped and beaten and then thrown into prison. But as we saw, Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens, which meant that it was illegal for them to be punished without a trial, which is why Paul refers to their treatment here as shameful. Not only were they falsely accused, but they were unlawfully humiliated and publicly disgraced. Nevertheless, their suffering didn't stop them from continuing to share the gospel. Instead, Paul says here that they had boldness in God to proclaim the gospel to the Thessalonians, even though that it meant they came into even more opposition. And the point of reminding the church of this is that it establishes the fact that Paul is engaging in ministry despite the fact that it is not bringing him fame or fortune. And it's doing the exact opposite. And so the only explanation for Paul's ministry is that he genuinely believes this message that he's proclaiming. Otherwise, he would have given up a long time ago and gone and found something else to do with his time. Now we see that Paul's ministry comes out of conviction, not conceit. Then in verses 3 through 5, Paul insists that his intentions in ministry are pure. He writes, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So first of all, Paul's message didn't arise out of error. He was not mistaken about who Jesus was or what he did in his life, death, and resurrection or what the implications of that are for our lives. Paul knew what he was talking about. Paul's message didn't arise out of impurity. He wasn't using his ministry as a front to, to secretly achieve some kind of sinful desire for power or for wealth. And finally, Paul's ministry wasn't an attempt to deceive people. Paul wasn't a snake oil salesman. It was just looking for a, a quick buck so that he could make really quickly before he moved on to the next victim. Instead, in verse 4, he declares that his team has been approved by God. And that because of that, they seek to please God. Not necessarily please people. Right? Look again at, at Paul's words in verse 5. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. And he is confident enough to call God to be his witness as he says this. So we see that Paul wasn't a celebrity or a politician who's held captive to, to a need to be popular. Right? He didn't put up his finger to, to see which way the wind was blowing and then, and then adjust his message accordingly. No, he spoke the message he had been entrusted with by God. And if people received it, they received it. And if they didn't, they didn't. He continues in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So, so I thought about it as I read this verse. What would we do if we came to, to know that the Apostle Paul was going to visit our church next week? I think we'd probably pull out all the stops. Right? We, we'd find a, a nice place for him to stay while he was here. We'd probably cater a big meal in his honor, we'd probably find someone else to preach besides me while he was here. Right? This is the Apostle Paul. 
We wouldn't be here without him. This is the man that God used to take the gospel around the world. You want to put our, our best foot forward in his honor. If there's any human who desires to be honored by us, there is nobody more than him. And we see here that in one sense, Paul recognized the authority he had as an apostle. Right? He could have expected the Thessalonians to, to pull out the red carpet for him. Right? But he was humble. And consequently, he reminds the church at the end of the paragraph, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And so, far from looking to take from the church for his own advantage, we see that it was actually the exact opposite Paul loved the church so much, and he cared for these members so much, that he gave of himself for their benefit. And he compares his attitude to that of a nursing mother who cares for and, and protects and feeds her own children. And then as we move into verse 9, Paul is going to reiterate one last time that his actions among them, and the, the first time, make his good intentions Clear. And so we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 9. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So in this final section of the passage, Paul continues to describe his approach to ministry. And he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Again, rather than taking from these new believers, Paul supported himself, as we saw in the book of Acts, by being a tent maker in order to provide for his own needs financially. In fact, Paul never accepted money from a church during his initial time of ministry with them. He would instead receive support from other churches that he had already planted and who were committed to engaging in fulfilling the Great Commission by partnering with him for ministry. And we actually know from Paul's letters to the Corinthians that eventually the Thessalonian church became an example of what it looked like to give generously for the cause of the kingdom. But not at the beginning. At first, Paul worked to provide for his own needs so that it was clear that his only concern was for the spiritual well-being of these new believers. And again, he calls both them and God to bear witness to the truth of his claim. And then at the very end of the paragraph, Paul compares his ministry among them to, to a father teaching his son what it looks like to grow up into maturity. We see that he exhorted them, he encouraged them, he charged each of them to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And as, as we well know, the word walk is a metaphor for the way that we live our lives, meaning that Paul called them to live in a way that God deserves for his people to live. 
uh, that we should live in, in a way that honors and glorifies him, both in our, our attitudes and our actions. Right? And so the, we see that there are two stages of Paul's ministry. The first stage was sharing the gospel with whoever would listen and tell them the good news about what God has done to save us from our sin through faith in Jesus. And then the second stage of ministry was gathering those who had believed into a church where they would spend the rest of their lives learning and growing to becoming the people that God called them to be as they allowed the gospel to transform them from the inside out. And so this, this was Paul's M.O. It wasn't fancy, it wasn't complicated. Right? He, he simply gave his life to helping people come to know and follow Jesus, pure and simple. And so in our passage this morning, Paul continues to review his initial ministry among the Thessalonians, and he makes it clear that his character was above reproach in every way. Whether you realized it or not, as we went along, Paul appeals to what the Thessalonians know themselves or what they remember six different times. He consistently brings them back to things that they know. He says, you know this or you remember that. He constantly draws their attention to how he conducted himself so that there is no reason for them to second guess his intentions with them. And certainly, as Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his pure motivations, he's also setting the stage to confront some of the issues that need to be corrected in the church. Right? But beyond that, what we have in this passage is a description of what should characterize ministry at any time, in any place, among any people. And loosely following the flow of the passage, I want to bring out three temptations that Paul resisted, that we need to be aware of as a church. So first of all, which is the whole point of the passage, we need to recognize that there are always temptations for our motives in ministry to become impure. Right? Throughout the passage, Paul insists that his motives in ministry are good. He's not doing what he does because of anything that he gets out of doing it. And so, in light of that, we should ask ourselves the question, why do we do what we do as a church? Is it because we want to be the biggest church in town? Or is it because it's what makes us feel comfortable? Or is it simply because it's what we've always done? And what else would we do? Which is to say that we don't really know why we do what we do. Or... Do we do what we do as a church because we are committed to making disciples of Jesus? You see, that must always be the motivation. Or what do we do as individual members of the church? Why do we engage in ministry on an individual level? Is it because we want to look good to the people around us? Is it because we think that in some sense engaging in ministry earns God's approval of us in some way? Or if you're on staff here at the church, is it because that's what pays the bills? Or do we do what we do because we are committed to making disciples of Jesus? Again, that has to be the motivation. Our motives for ministry must always be pure. Secondly, we should recognize that there is a temptation to capitulate in the face of persecution. And so in this section, 
Paul draws attention to the suffering he endured in his ministry. And he does that because it reveals the genuineness of his commitment to the gospel. Now, I do my best not to be reactive to every rumor and headline that you find in the news. But I think it's undeniable that our nation has a long-standing trajectory of becoming more and more hostile to the biblical worldview. And I suspect that in the coming years, maybe sooner, maybe later, that there will be increasing pressure for us to back down on our commitment to the gospel in the face of various kinds of opposition. And when that time comes, we will find out whether we really believe what we say we believe, or, or whether our motivations uh, for engaging in the life of the church and in gospel ministry uh, stemmed from, from motivations that will no longer be there anymore, in the face of counter-motivations, perhaps. So as Jesus himself said, we must count the cost of discipleship if we are to truly engage in it. And finally, we should also recognize that there are always temptations to compromise what the scriptures teach in order to be more attractive to the world around us. Right? Everybody likes to be liked. Nobody likes being disliked. Right? Everybody would like to, to uh, be more popular rather than less. And I think about how many struggling or, or declining churches have asked the question, what do we need to do to get more people to come to our church services? Or, or how many stable but, but stagnant churches have asked the question, what do we need to do in order to take our church to the next level? And there may well be answers to those questions, but those answers never include compromising on God's word. Right, Paul makes it clear throughout this passage that he engaged in ministry as someone who was approved by God, someone who sought to please God, not necessarily people. And the fact is that we could probably have more people at our services if we would just loosen up a little bit about the Bible's teaching about morality or the exclusive nature of salvation as being only through faith in Jesus. But our goal is not necessarily to have more people at our services at any cost. Our goal is to make disciples of Jesus. And Jesus defines that process of discipleship in the Great Commission as teaching people to obey all that he has commanded. And we can't do that while simultaneously telling people that they don't actually have to do everything that Jesus commanded. And Paul reminds us, his example shows us in this passage that true ministry involves presenting the message as it is, not necessarily as people would like it to be. Right? Our goal is not to tell people what they want to hear, but to bear witness to what God wants us to hear as he has given it to us in his word. And so as Paul reminds the Thessalonians of how he and his team conducted ministry among them, we should also be reminded of what we should do as we conduct our ministry today. And we should constantly check our motives. We must count the cost of discipleship. We must always hold true to God's word. And so this morning, let's commit ourselves to being a church that engages in ministry in a way that is approved by God. Let's pray together.